Good morning. So good to see you this morning. I, I do want to, before we jump in the lesson, say that last Sunday, in an effort to try to get to know you a little better and to talk a little more, um, we had a meet and greet at 4 o'clock up here at the building. I said we'd do that num a number of times. We will, just not today. So um, if you'd plan on coming up here at 4, we will do that at some point again, just not today. Spring break, I know a lot of people are dispersed and I got my kids home and uh, I would like to be at home and have them ignore me. So, um, but yeah. <laughs> there is a... Uh, there is a phrase that may be the most uttered phrase in the English language. It's a phrase that sounds so good and so profound, but in actuality, it may be the least substantive phrase in the English language. You know what it is? It's this. If there's anything I can do to help, let me know. You ever just say something because you know it's the right thing to say? You may not have any intent to follow through, you just... You say it because you know that's what you're supposed to say. Oftentimes, we'll tell somebody, well, I'll, I'll pray for you, and we forget. I mean, we probably, if you're like me, you don't remember to pray for them, sadly. We just say certain things because it's the thing you're supposed to say. And this is a phrase that we often say with no follow-through. I'm reminded of this cartoon of a woman who is lying in bed under the covers and she's got a thermometer sticking out of her mouth and she's obviously sick and there are kids running around they're a complete and total mess they need a bath there's dirty kitchens and uh, dishes in the sink and there's 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 laundry piled up there's a cat drinking spoiled milk in the corner and there's a woman at the door going okay Florence if you need anything just let me know we have good intentions sometimes, but we don't always follow through. In his book, Improving Your Serve, Charles Swindle stated that when he first approached the idea of servanthood, he had a very negative attitude. He said, I didn't want to do it. I didn't want to study it. It didn't seem very interesting to me. The whole idea of being a servant sounded negative. In fact, to me, when I thought of the word servant, I thought of a human mule. That's probably a pretty apt description, right? A human mule. Just throw everything on top of that human mule and let it work. He goes on to say, who wants to be a human mule? It's kind of like the California Conservation Corps, which is an organization out in California that seeks to lure young people into giving up a year or two of their lives and working for you know, the forest or, or, or building infrastructure. They had a slogan. They may still have the slogan, but their slogan that they put on all the billboards and everything was this, long hours, hard work, low pay. Just come right out and tell you. It's going to be a lot of work. You're going to work long hours, and you're not going to make a whole lot. And that's how we often look at service. It's arduous, it's time-consuming, it's painful, it's unpleasurable without much reward. In fact, in the church, as a Christian, we look at it as a necessary evil. Well, I guess I've got to serve. The Bible tells me I have to. I'm a Christian now, so I've got to do something. I know I can't just come and sit. Folks, let me tell you, I think we need a paradigm shift in the way we see service. We've gotten it all wrong for too long. When it comes to service... We need to think not in terms of obligation, but in terms of salvation. Many times we are, at least we feel, that we're guilted into service. Okay, okay, I, I'll go help in the nursery. I, I, you broke my will. All right, I'll, I'll go teach the junior high. You know, you, you keep badgering me about it. I, I'll go. I'll teach in the junior high. 
Folks, let me tell you this. If you ever feel pressured or guilted into serving here at Oldham Lane, don't do it. Just don't do it. We don't need Christians who take up the mantle of service simply because they feel obligated or because they feel pressured or because their will was broken, right? Maybe something needs to be done, but it needs to be done with the right heart and with the right attitude. Galatians 5.13, Paul wrote, For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. But through guilt, serve one another, right? That's what your, your version says, right? Through obligation, serve one another. Begrudgingly serve one another as long as you're serving. No, your version doesn't say that. Not one of you has a version that says any of those things because the proper translation is through love, serve one another. We need a paradigm shift in the way we think of service. Why help in the nursery? Why would you help in the nursery? Because they need a warm body and you felt guilted into doing it? No, hopefully it's because you love kids. And you want them to have a godly influence from the time that they can't even remember, perhaps, on up. Why teach in the junior high? Well, because you love the kids and you want to see them grow up to be strong oaks of faith that have a strong root system. And you want to be a part of influencing their lives for the better. Why set up tables and chairs for a seminar or a fellowship meal? Because you know that what's going to happen around that table is good stuff. It's fellowship. It's encouragement. The people sitting in those seats have been blessed, just like you have, with a wonderful facility to participate in certain things like this in. It's a paradigm shift in the way that we think. And it may seem silly to you, but what's the better option? Looking at it like, I have to do this or I get to do this. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. Within these ten verses, we find the whole gospel summed up in six words. Six words that come in three sets of two. That's pretty confusing, but hang with me. Verse one, you were. Verse four, but God. And verse eight, by faith. That's the whole gospel, isn't it? The whole gospel in two words grouped in, in a three there. The first two words describe your condition apart from God. You were dead in your trespasses. The second two words talk about what God did through his son and sending him to this earth to die a cruel death on a cruel cross so that you could be forgiven, so that you could live in Christ. And then the last two words talk about your response, right, 
through faith. By grace, you have been saved through faith. You've repented. You've confessed Jesus. You've been immersed in the waters of baptism for the remission of your sins. Let's look at these six words a little closer. The first two, you were. Paul says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But in what sense? Because obviously you weren't dead physically. Now some would say, well, you were dead spiritually. In fact, I think we need a paradigm shift in the way that we think about certain phrases and certain concepts when it comes to the New Testament, and this is maybe one of those. When Paul talks about being dead in your trespasses and sins, he's not talking about what we normally think of and what we normally teach. You see, here's how we look at it. You have the physical and you have the spiritual. One's bad and one's good. That's how we've often been taught. That's how we often think, right? The spiritual relates to like ghostly and disembodied, you know, kind of thing. And the physical is your flesh or material things. And those are all bad because they don't make a hill of beans in eternity. And so those are bad and the spiritual is good. You know what that is more than anything? Sounds an awful lot like Gnosticism, doesn't it? which is a heresy that John and others refuted in the New Testament. Paul doesn't make that perfect dichotomy. Paul doesn't make that line of demarcation. When you hear about a plane crash and they say 200 souls were on board, what do you think of? Disembodied spirits? No, you think of bodies, you think of people. And that's what the Jews thought of as well. The apostles who were Jewish, Jesus who was Jewish, when they thought of soul, they connected it with physical right? Almost always that was what their thinking was, is that you had a body and a spirit. Yes, there is a sense that when we die, the spirit leaves the body, right? And we'll talk more about this in another sermon. But when it comes to being dead in your trespasses and sins, Paul is just simply talking about how that the spirit is what animates the physical body. It's what moves you. When your spirit is gone, guess what? You're dead. Gone, right? We get this animation from the spirit, and I I just want to point out that it is God who animates us, right? He brings that body to life. Ephesians chapter 2 is not the perfect dichotomy that we often think of when we think of spiritual and physical. We need to change our thinking on that. Also, you've heard that if somebody is spiritually dead, it means that they're separated from God, right? That's also an assumption that we make with this text and that we even teach that Paul doesn't make. So we think of spiritually dead. Well, what does spiritually dead mean? Well, it means I'm separated from God. Yes, when you die, your spirit is separated from your body, but it's not accurate to assume that separation is an exact definition of death because it's not. There is a sense in which there is separation. We've talked about that before. A theme, a common theme of scripture is exile, right? Being separated from God while you're in captivity or exile. Of course, you're not truly separated because God was still watching over them. He was benevolent in nature the way that he was acting for his people. But Adam and Eve, for instance, they were told as soon as you touch that forbidden fruit, you will die, right? How did they die? Well, not physically, at least not in that moment, but they were going to. Death was now a part of the equation. Not exactly in that moment, but it would be, right? Before it wasn't, but now it was going to be a part of the equation. So there is a sense in which death and separation can be related, but it's not the perfect match that we often think of. You see, most of the time, most of the time when the Bible talks about death, 
It is speaking in very literal terms. We just make it too hard. Well, it's talking about spiritual death here and separation. No, no, no. When Paul talks about being dead in your trespasses, you know what he's talking about when he uses the word dead? Your heart stops. It's that simple. That's what he's talking about. You're dead. It's a medical thing. It's not a spiritual thing. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't die spiritually. When he rose from the dead, he didn't rise spiritually. No, he rose in his body and he was, it was a physical resurrection. He was dead and he came back to life. And that's what Paul is referencing here. So instead of reading Paul's words as that all are spiritually dead before being baptized and then they're spiritually alive, consider these words from the perspective of one who wrote them. And Paul means that those who are outside of Christ are headed for death. Kind of like the villain in a Western movie pointing his gun, or, or the hero in the Western movie pointing his gun at the villain and saying, you're a dead man. He's about to be, right? I mean, he's saying, I'm about to make that come true. It's kind of like a dead man walking. When you see a man on dead row walking towards the electric chair, they often use the phrase dead man walking. Same thing. Paul is saying that what is inevitable is going to come true. You're going to die. And when you die without Christ, guess what? You have eternal separation. Because that's the worst part about hell, isn't it? You can have the licking flames and the fire and brimstone. The worst part about hell is who's not there. Separation from God for all eternity. The one place where the omnipresent God is not. And I don't think anyone wants to be separated from God for all eternity, at least not in this room. So what Paul is saying is that the inevitable is going to happen. You're going to die. So then what? Then what? Well, eternal separation if you're not in Christ. So that's the first two words. Then he says, but God. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God. We were unresponsive and decaying, but God. We were conforming to the world, prisoners of Satan, gratifying the flesh, but God. We were headed straight to hell, but God. Our salvation hangs on these two profound words. Notice verses 4 and 5 again. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Love mercy, grace, Christ, my death is inevitable. Like a man who is on death row, who is heading down to the electric chair, I stand condemned, but God, but God takes away any fear of death. I'm going to be resurrected to a new life. I am not a slave to death any longer. Like Jesus, I'm going to be walking out of that grave someday. I've been set free. So that's but God. And then the last grouping of two words, by faith. How many of you, when your kids were little, and maybe you have little kids right now, how many of you asked them, do you need a diaper change? You had a sense, right? And so many times they respond, no. What do you mean, no? I mean, you obviously do. Why would you want to continue walking around with a dirty diaper, right? And yet there are people who do that all the time. There are people who choose to remain in filth. They just, they, they don't change, right? So when we talk about by faith, we are talking about how everything you deserve, Jesus endured. That you don't have to walk around in the mess and the filth any longer. That you can be changed. The righteous judge looks at you and me and says, not guilty. Why? Because his son paid the penalty for our sin. Everyone sitting in the auditorium this morning is responsible for the death of another human being. Every one of you including me, we are all responsible for the death of another human being. 
That should arrest us. That should cause us to at least pause and consider that we are getting something that we don't deserve. Because of the blood shed by God's only begotten Son, you and I can stand before a holy and righteous God, and rather than being condemned, we are forgiven. We find favor in the eyes of God, not because we are good, but because God is good. So why? You ever consider that? Why? Why would God do this? Why would he send his only begotten son to die that cruel death on that cruel cross just for sinners like you and me that are wallowing in filth? Well, the easy answer is love, right? Well, because he loves us. And that's true, but Paul digs a little deeper. Notice verses 5 through 7. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice the verbs, made alive, raised up, made to sit. These verbs are a description of what Jesus did, the resurrection, the ascension, the position. This isn't a description, though, of Jesus, is it? Do you notice that? What's this a description of? Who's he talking to? Us. Well, he's talking to the Christians at that time, but he's also talking to us, isn't he? It's a message for us. He's affirming not only what God did through his son, but what he has done for all his sons, and there's more to come. Did you catch that? So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Stay tuned. There's more to come. There's more to come. This is only the beginning. There are exceeding riches of his grace and kindness that are yet to be shown. How can one person receive so much from God, right? How could he bestow so much on me? Because he loves me, yes. And also because he wants me to have hope. He wants me to look forward to something even better on the horizon. You are a showcase of God's grace. You are a walking, talking, living, breathing testament to how much God loves dead people. How beautiful is that? But here's the deal. You're not in heaven yet. Not yet. And that means something. Because you're thinking, Chris, this is on service, and this is on being a servant and how Jesus is our example. So why are you talking about the gospel? Because it all is predicated upon that. It all goes back to that. Everything relates to who we are in Christ. You know, I am a huge Arkansas Razorbacks fan. I have been since birth. And uh, in fact, that's probably an understatement to say that I'm a huge fan. I'm an avid fan. And really, there's a buzz in Arkansas right now over our new head basketball coach, Eric Musselman. His dad was an NBA coach. He was an NBA coach, most recently coached at Nevada. And everybody's excited about the recruits he's bringing in. He really kind of exceeded expectations this year. And people are excited about Razorback basketball again. We'll see if it lasts. The honeymoon stage doesn't last very long. If he has a losing season next year, he'll probably be fired. But for right now, everybody is excited. And I was watching a video that he did before the season started. It was training camp, if you will. And so he has all his players gathered around him, and he's talking to them, and this is what he says to them. He says, your mindset should not be, I have to be here until we get to play a game. But rather, I get to be here. I get to be here and get better. That's how you've got to be thinking right now. It's like, wow, I get a chance to get better. Two more hours to get better today. That's us. 
I get to serve. I get to serve. I get the opportunity to serve today. Every day that my feet hit the floor when I get out of bed, I have an opportunity to serve a great God who has done so much for me. This is not about obligation. This is about privilege. This is about opportunity. This is about gratitude of appreciation. I have been saved from wrath. I was once dead in my trespasses. I've been plucked from the fires of hell. I've been gifted with grace. I've been blessed with surpassing riches. I get to do something then. You see, we've got to stop looking at service through the lens of obligation and start looking at it through the lens of salvation. I have been saved and I get to serve. Hooray, right? How exciting is that? There was a woman who was married to a jerk. There's just no other way to put it. He was a ruthless dictator in his own household, and he required her to do certain things all the time. He expected her to do a list of chores every single day that were all meant to serve him. Make his meals, do his laundry, uh, wait on him hand and foot. The woman was beside herself with grief. She could not stand the current relationship she was in. This was not the man that she married. Well, he got ill and passed away. And while she was saddened, she was also relieved to some degree. After some time, she married another man. And this man was everything that her first husband was not. He waited on her hand and foot. He treated her like a queen. When she tried to do things for him, he'd say, no, honey, I got it. You don't have to do that. One day she was cleaning out some drawers in her home, and she found that list that her ruthless dictator husband had made for her and expected her to fulfill. And she looked at that list, and you know what she discovered? She was doing everything on that list for her new husband. But not because she had to. Not because she feared abuse, but because she loved him. It wasn't out of obligation. It was out of appreciation. That is us. We all need to come to grips with the fact that we exist to serve God because he has been so good to us. How could you ever read through Ephesians 2, 1 through 10 and come to the conclusion that I've just got to serve because that's my obligation. I don't want to do it, but God's breaking my will. How could you ever read through Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10 and not feel a sense of motivation to get out there and do something, right? This is not about having your will broken. This is not about being a human mule. This is about being God's hand and feet in the world. This is about taking up a towel and a mission and showing appreciation. That's what this is about. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. You were made for this. When you put on Christ, you put on work clothes. Do you realize that? You are his workmanship. When you were baptized, you were given a towel and a mission. And you were given the blessing to serve. Not the obligation. You were given the blessing to serve. And so maybe you sit there and you think, or you've been thinking, oh, I mean, I mean, not you. I mean, we're all perfect. I'm perfect, you're perfect. So this is not really us. But maybe there are some Christians that have been thinking, you know, I, I, I just have to do this because the Bible tells me so. Obedience that is forced is not really obedience. The Bible speaks to that. I mean, 
In no way, shape, or form does God expect us to put compliance over relationship and, and those kind of things. No way. I mean, that's what the Pharisees did, right? They were all about fulfilling, you know, the commands and doing the duties. And Jesus says that's not good enough. But we shouldn't settle for that anyway, based on who we are and what we have been saved from, right? I read the story the other day about a little boy who was sitting in the pew and the collection plate was being passed and, and he saw everybody putting money in and he wanted to give something. And so he rifled through his pockets, but he couldn't find any change or any money and the tray was getting closer and closer and finally it got to him and he didn't know what to do, but he wanted to give something. And so he put it on the ground and he got in it and he sat down and he looked up at the usher like, you going to pick me up or not? I mean, what more could you give, though? That's what this is about. It's putting your whole self in. It's about giving everything you have. It's about giving all of you because God gave the best. He gave his only begotten son. How could we not be inspired by that? You know, every church is filled with willing people. I believe that, don't you? I believe every church is filled to the rim with, with willing people. People who are willing to serve and people who are willing to let them do it. Which are you? Remember these words. Jesus said, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. And to give his life a ransom for many. You may read over that and not really think much of it. But notice again, for even... Even the Son of Man did not come to be served. If anybody should have come to be served, it should have been the Son of Man. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, God's anointed, the Messiah. If anybody should have come just simply to be served, it should have been Him. And you know what He did? He washed feet. Not only that, He washed the feet of the one that He knew was going to betray Him. You got a towel and a mission. Let's get to work. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to be here this morning. We thank you so much for this church, and we thank you for the mission. We thank you for salvation and the fact that we have the opportunity to serve you, and we are grateful for that privilege. May we never see it as a duty or an obligation, but rather as a show of appreciation for all that you've done for us. Be with us, God. Guide us. Help us in the mission. Help us when we are depleted. Help us when we are tired. Help us when, you know, we struggle with having a good attitude. Help us to be more like Jesus, to take up a towel. It's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. If we can help you this morning, Clinton's going to lead us in a song. If you need the prayers of this family, if you're ready to take the next step, whatever that is, Bible study, maybe you're ready to to talk about baptism, maybe you're ready to put on Christ in baptism, whatever your need is, we invite you to come as we stand and as we sing.